Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance physical and mental well-being and encourage community. When I say community, what I mean is I believe that human beings are basically friendly tribal animals. And when we live together in small enough groups where all of us can recognize each other either by face or by name, we cooperate and we collaborate, but only when there is that amount of contact. And so contact is essential. And we're living in a time right now where we're just coming out of a pandemic, hopefully, which created a great deal more isolation. I just read a report, a scientific article on the effects of remote working. And it does not look good, folks. It looks like remote working is leading to more isolation and alienation and less collaboration and cooperation. Basically, what the scientists are telling us is we need to be around each other in order to cooperate and collaborate. And when we all go into our own little caves, which we were forced to do by the pandemic, things don't go as well. So let's give that some consideration going forward. Enough for that. Now on to our interview. Today, we have with us Paul Levy, who has dedicated a significant part of his life to bringing to us a concept that he's going to talk about today called Wetico. Did I pronounce it correctly, Paul? Um, it's fine. There's no one way to pronounce it, so that's fine. How do you pronounce it? I pronounce it um, Wetico is the way I say it, but that's just the way it naturally comes off of my lips. So I see. Well, I'm going to try to do it your way and call it Wetico. Okay. Paul is a pioneer in the field of spiritual emergence. He's a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner, and he has been that for over 30 years. Paul is also the founder of the Awakening in the Dream community in Portland, Oregon. Paul, I know we're going to talk about, talk about Wadiko, but first I want to ask you about this community. Tell us about the Awakening Dream community in Portland. For sure. Well, yeah, no, so I've been doing that um, for about 30 years. And it's basically, I began having an experience probably over 40 years ago of, of realizing that we're having a collectively shared dream, that that's what this is. And so the Awaken in the Dream community, it's really um, bringing people together who are tapping into the dreamlike nature of reality. And we're actually discovering there's a way of being together in community, like you were saying, um, of hanging out with each other where we can step into this being a dream and um, we can really um, to deepen our realization of the dreamlike nature, which opens up an incredible um, creative spirit in us and it opens up our heart and it helps us to snap out of the, the false imagination that we exist as separate selves and recognize that we're actually interdependent. And this community, the Awakening the Dream community, do you have meetings on a regular basis or how do you get yeah. together or do you live together? Is it a cooperative? Tell no, us no, about it. It's, yeah. So we basically, um, right now I have about five 
every week, like five different groups, a couple of that. Well, they're all on, they've all been on zoom. Um, but three of them are just people in Portland where before the lockdown, we would meet in person every, every week. These are weekly groups. And some people are in the groups over 20 years. Some groups, the average tenure might be 13, 14 years average each person in the group. And, and, um, but I now have a couple of groups that are non-local that are people all over the world that meet on Zoom. And, um, and I'm just one of the members of the group, but I'm also the visionary, the one who had the vision of that. There's a way of being together and stepping into the dream and unfolding the dream that unlocks this incredible creative spirit in us, you know. Are there themes for each of the meetings or is it open? Everybody talks about what they want to. How does that work? Yeah, well, it's stepping into the dream. And when you step into a dream, there's no agenda, there's no structure, there's no theme. You just are present and follow how the dream manifests. And you have the recognition that, wait a second, if this this is a dream, we're all dream characters in each other's dream. And, um, you know, so there's no, it's exactly like when you're in a dream at night and you have the awareness that you're dreaming, there's no like, you know, structure or theme or agenda. You just follow the dream. And, but we're all co-dreaming the dream of the group because they last about two, two and a half hours. We're co-dreaming it together. And so it's activating that part of us that has creative agency on how we're creating our experience but we're discovering we can actually be together in a way that helps us to deepen that realization. And how many people approximately are in each of the five groups? Yeah. So in other words, one, um, you know, I would say average, I, well, actually before the lockdown, about a dozen in each group. And it, maybe it's gotten a little smaller now to about 10. And um, and yeah, and it's you, it's an incredibly intimate circumstance. You really get to know each other. And you play out your stuff. If people get triggered, great. Let's unfold that. If there's conflict, fantastic. Let's go into that. And um, so it's not just all a love and light thing, but it's a real sangha, a real community, a spiritual community. You know, and if there is like friction or shadow projection, great. That's that's the that's what we go into, you know, to more deeply unfold. Okay. Do do the five groups ever get together and meet each other? Yeah, well, keep in mind, two of them are not in Portland and the other three. Yeah. On the occasion, we'll have, you know, parties or I'll bring my teachers. And, you know, so, yeah, different members of the different groups will get to meet each other in that way. And then I have this once a month group that's separate that everybody's invited to. And it's an optional group, you know, and then people on the waiting list come to that. So it's a it's a whole community of people who are awakening to the dreamlike nature, really. So you, you, you're establishing community. That's a lot of what this is about, isn't it? Completely, completely. That's why in your intro, when you were talking about community, I was taking note. I was really appreciating what you were saying because, yeah, you know, and keep in mind for me, based on my experience, how I discovered in my own life, this mind virus, Watiko mind virus, how I discovered it was that this energy, this Watiko energy came into my family of origin and destroyed the entire family. I haven't had a family for over 20 years. And I mean, I'm all good. I have a huge, you know, circle of friends. But the point is, I, I think unconsciously recreated a healthy, functional family in this Awaken in the Dream community because my family was destroyed 
by what you call by the mind virus. So we're going to focus today on your latest book, Watiko, you've written other books about Watiko. You've dedicated right. a significant amount of your precious life energy to right. bringing Watiko to the attention of the public. Right. Now, Watiko, as I understand it, is an Algonquin Indian name. It has a lot of meaning that you're bringing to us. Give us some headlines and description of what Watiko is. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, the 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 actual the the name is Algonquin, it's Cree Indians. Um, but the idea of Watiko is found in every spiritual tradition from time immemorial. And um it you could liken it to this this virus of the mind that works through the blind spots, the unconscious blind spots, such that it, you know, we project, we're always projecting onto the ink blot of the waking dream. But we project in a way such that we then imagine that what our projections are objectively exists, which we then become conditioned by. So in a sense, we entrance ourselves. We hypnotize ourselves by the creative genius of our own mind. And um, such that Watiko, which is actually um, the source of, of the incredible evil that we're playing out, and it's also the source of the collective madness. Watiko is a collective psychosis. And um, if we're not awake to it, because just remember, it works through the blind spots. It's a form of psychic blindness. If we're not awake to it, we then unwittingly become an instrument and it acts itself out through us. And it's at the bottom of all the people who have addictions, of trauma, you know, uh, where any, any process where we actually recreate our own self-abuse and our creativity gets limited, we're colluding with that. And, and Watiko is a major part of that. And, um, but what I point out in my work is that Watiko, it's a quantum phenomena. And what I mean just really simply is that same thing. What is the nature of here's light? Is it a wave or a particle? Well, it depends how you observe it. Watiko is also the greatest catalyst for the evolution of the human species that we've ever known. And it's a superposition of states. It's both the greatest poison, the source of evil. If we don't recognize it, it's going to kill us. And yet it can actually help us to wake up if we recognize that it's a living revelation. And that's what I've devoted my life to is trying to get out the word. You talk about this Watiko using the word virus. Now, most of us relate to the word virus as something physical that can be seen under a microscope and can be measured and that we can come up with a vaccine to right. deal with. But that's not what you're talking about. You're talking no, about no. something that is not material. Is that correct? Right. Well, what I'm talking about is based in science. Okay. It's based on quantum physics, which is considered to be, you know, widely accepted the greatest, you know, the greatest discovery ever in all of history in the realm of science is quantum physics and quantum physics has discovered that, you know, the fundamental essence of this world that we can, that underlying matter is mind, that mind and matter are inseparable. That's what I mean when I talk about the dreamlike nature. And so in essence, what I'm saying, it's not anything like out there or crazy. I'm basically saying, look, we're in the middle of a collective psychosis. What more evidence do you need? And the origin of it, of that collective psychosis and the solution 
is to be found within the psyche, you know, and the psyche isn't material, you know, and so the psyche is the underlying quality that's giving shape to what we're creating in our world. And that's where the solution is to be found, is within the psyche. And that's where Watiko is to be found. You mentioned earlier that this Watiko had a extremely deleterious effect upon your own personal family. Right. May I ask you to tell us about that? Sure. I, you know, and I, I wrote a book about it, a 600 page book, and I'm happy to talk about it for hours, but I'll just give you the thumbnail sketch, you know, and the, the actual details and story aren't overly important, except, you know, to really, you know, to present the deeper thing I'm talking about. So I'm an only child and it wound up that my father, like a lot of people, he, instead of, you know, dealing with his own unhealed abuse, he actually became possessed by it and acted it out and passed it on. And I was the sensitive kid, the only child. So it got enacted on me. And, and he just played the role of absolutely doubling down and refusing to self-reflect. So basically it created, the point is it created enormous suffering for me. And we're talking as a, as a young person in college, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old. And the suffering was so overwhelming of the emotional abuse, the incredible double bind that I was put in, that I went inwards. And I just began to assume the position of the witness inside my own mind. And after, and it was the only thing I could figure out to do that would any, in any way alleviate the over the top suffering I was in. And after a couple of years of going inwards really deeply, hours and hours every day, every day, I had a spiritual awakening. I got hit by a bolt of lightning inside my brain, not from outside. And within hours, I went into an extreme altered state in which I began to have the realization that this is a dream. And then stuff began happening. I began meeting my teachers, these great enlightened beings from Southeast Asia and Tibet. And when I was around them, stuff began to happen that was physically impossible. That could only happen in a dream. And now I realized, yeah, I was having, I was being shown something. I was receiving a teaching. Then it was so destabilizing. But right away, as soon as I had got hit by that lightning bolt and within hours went into the altered state, I immediately got thrown in mental hospitals because from outside, from the, you know, objective point of view, it looked like I had had this radical personality change where I was just so ecstatic at what I was realizing. I was realizing this was the good news that we're having a, co a collective dream. And just like a dream at night, you can actually have lucidity and then, you know, to dream the dream much more in alignment with who you're discovering that you are. But I hadn't integrated the realization. It, it came, it was overwhelming. So I was immediately hospitalized, diagnosed, told, oh, you're manic depressive, you'll have this illness for the rest of your life, you'll need to be on medication the rest of your life. And I knew I was having an awakening, there wasn't the slightest doubt, you know, at all, it was made very clear to me. So not for one second did I buy into that. But over the next um, almost two years, I was hospitalized maybe four other times, and always told, oh, you're, you're mentally ill. And I'm just thinking, these people are complete idiots. They have no idea what they're talking about. And I was fortunate in that very quickly, I extricated myself from psychiatry. I, you know, I had met my teachers. You know, they saw what was happening. 
And, um, but it was unbelievably traumatic because now I had the double trauma of the abuse from my father and then psychiatry, you know. And so it took me a dozen years at least going to therapy and doing inner work and connecting with my dreams and making art and studying young and quantum physics and alchemy and shamanism and plant medicine, everything under the sun that would in any way help me, I, I actually took on board. And then after about a dozen years, I, I realized, well, I'm integrated enough. I'm not anything like enlightened, but I'm, I have some sort of gift that I've received by going through that ordeal. This was in 94. That's when I began teaching and I haven't had to do anything else since. It's a pretty big jump to go from personal family abuse to a lightning bolt in your head of awakening to a mental hospital. Mm -hmm. What happened to you personally after the lightning bolt experience that led to your being hospitalized? Well, I can and give, yeah. what, was, yeah. Did you manifest behave? Were you taken away to the mental hospital against your will? Was it voluntary or did, did no, you it do was, it? was not voluntary. I can explain, you know, I can answer that really simply. So like I was saying, I was so absolutely over the top ecstatic. I was, you know, um, just having this in, in enthusiasm, enthusiasm and theos means to be filled with spirit. It was like I had become completely filled with some sort of spirit um, in which, like I was saying, I was realizing the dreamlike nature. So I'll tell you the specific story. So I got brought by an ambulance from San Francisco to Highland Hospital in Oakland, California in May 1981. I'm right. very familiar with Highland Hospital. I've actually worked there. Okay, great. And so I get brought in and I'm in this completely expanded. Well, uh, uh, slow down just one second. Yeah. Thank you. What led to your being brought in? Did, how did you come to the I attention? Tried to, I tried to, I've been trying to say, I was so unbelievably enthusiastic and excited at what I was realizing. This was hours after getting hit by the lightning bolt where I was realizing this is a dream. We are having a dream. This is a collective dream. You're dreaming me up. I'm dreaming you up. You're dreaming me up to dream you up and vice versa ad infinitum. I was realizing this this universe is a collectively shared dream. And I was so excited that I alerted what I call the anti-bliss patrol. In other words, the authorities, because they couldn't have somebody just so enthusiastic because I hadn't possibly, I wasn't able to integrate what I was realizing. It was like this, this overwhelming, this, this realization. So it freaked people out because I was having like, from their point of view, a radical personality change. So the only thing they knew to do is pathologize me. They bring me by the ambulance to Highland Hospital. Here's what happened next. This will give you more of a sense. They bring me in. It's after dinner and they, um, to the psychiatric ward. They bring me to this lounge where all the psychiatric patients are. I'm in this completely expanded state filled with spirit. I immediately see out of all the psychiatric patients, there's an older woman who's blind. Her eyes are opaque. She can't see, and I don't even think about anything. I immediately just go up to her, and like I was given a script, all of a sudden I start saying to her, "Out of my words come the mouth. Out of my out of my mouth come the words. 
All you have to do to see is open your eyes and look. And I keep on repeating those words. I keep on getting closer to her. The whole thing took about a minute. She regains her sight. Her eyes become normal, healthy, radiant, seeing eyes. Right at that moment, they come and they take me and they strap me up on a bed where I spent the night. Now, I didn't get sleep that night. I was just completely thinking about what had just happened, you know, and that's what I mean. That was really clear that I was having a spiritual awakening. The next morning, they unstrapped me. They put me in a room. And who's the only other person in the room is this now ex-blind woman. And she's smiling at me ear to ear, not saying a word. And all of a sudden, my heart chakra just blossoms. And I, then I understood, oh, I get it. She, she had hysterical blindness. And somehow I was tuned into that. And I was the one sent. I was like an Uber driver who was in the area who was sent because she needed somebody to say those lines to remind her it was a psychological blindness that was manifesting physically. And by me saying the words that then I played the role of helping her to heal. And then I realized, oh, and she's the blind part of me. And, and then she says to me the only word she ever says to me. She says, aren't you going to answer the phone call from, and she mentions my father's name. And then within seconds, the nurse comes into the room and says, Paul, your father's on the phone because they just got word, my parents, that I'd had a psychotic break. Now, that experience saved my life because then psychiatry began diagnosing me. And that was one of many experiences. That was a minor experience compared to what I began to experience when I was around my teachers. Okay. But when I say it saved my life, I knew I was having, when you have an experience like that, you know, you're having an awakening. There's not the slightest doubt. So that's an example. In order to get taken to Highland Hospital to begin with, you, you had to come to the attention of certain authorities for doing something in public that they could well, not con- that they that they I could see. not control because the authorities yeah. like to control behavior in the public. Right. I was in San Francisco airport. My friend and I from college were going to fly up to Seattle to see a friend, and I was so you know just out of my mind in this ecstatic state. What I was realizing that it alerted the authorities. Absolutely. I see. I see. In in a, in an airport. Uh huh. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And. Now, take us from those early experiences. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's correct to say unfortunate experiences for those two years, because they may in some way have been fortunate experiences as well that you so much grew from, but you paid a high price because right. the tuition was being incarcerated in mental hospitals, which are not the most pleasant places by far to be spending right. one's young life. And you must have been in your early 20s. I was, right at that point, I was 24, 25 years old. So, you know, and I, I have to say, so at first I was like really mad at myself because I was like, well, I, I was having an awakening and I screwed this up and this is really bad. But then I began to realize at a certain point, no, the hospitalization was part of the awakening. It was a shamanic descent into the darkness of the underworld of the unconscious. And I never in a million in a million years would have believed the incredible insanity and unconsciousness and ignorance and abuse that gets acted out on a daily basis in the psychiatric system. I would have read a million books about that. I wouldn't have believed it, you know, until I experienced it firsthand. 
So, I mean, I'll just give you an example. I was, you know, so then there were points I got hospitalized for like three weeks at a time that happened twice and they were going to stabilize me on medication for the rest of my life. And so they, you know, of course they, the whole awakening got aborted and I was trying to explain to them about the incredible over the top abuse from my, my father was a criminal. He should have been behind bars. Okay. And, and I was trying to explain to them the abuse from my father, the psychiatrist protected my father. They aligned with him, you know, cause he was just saying, Oh no, Paul's just crazy. I'm a good father. And my mother was protecting, you know, my father too, protecting the abuser. So not only did psychiatry protect the abuser, not only did they not have the recognition of the healthy part of my process that I was spiritual awakening, but then they pathologized me telling me I had an illness that I didn't have. And so then I got sicker from all of, you know, the, that, that way of them treating me. And then the sicker I got, the more that confirmed to them the truth of their diagnosis that I am sick. And it was a feedback loop. And, and it was completely insane. And the more I tried to metacommunicate to them what was happening, the more they took me doing that as sign of my illness. Cause once they pathologize you, they see everything you do through the lens of that pathology. It was complete and utter madness. And I realized this is what happens in psychiatry. I've witnessed it myself because, as you may know, I'm a doctor of clinical psychology and I've worked in some of those wards early in my career. And I have witnessed people wrapped in sailcloth from a boat and sprayed with ice water. I've witnessed people hit in the body with a piece of soap uh, wrapped in a woman's stocking used as a, as, as a, a tool to hit patients. And I've witnessed people electroshocked. So it's, it's horrendous, and I know that. Now, to what extent, if any, did they drug you, Paul? Oh, they, I mean, I'm lucky that I never had the electroshock, but I got drugged pharmace with pharmaceutical drugs. And when I got out of the last hospital, which was 82, I just took myself, because then I figured out how to, you know, how to appear normal in mainstream reality and how to still have access to the mystical state that I was, you know, that I was tapping into. And I was able to, you know, to be fluid between the worlds in that way. So I quickly took myself off of the medication once I got out of that last hospital. And I haven't been on medication, you know, close to 40 years. You well, know? that's quite an accomplishment. And I, 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 I congratulate you for that. It's a major achievement. Mm-hmm. So tell us now how after these experiences, two years in and out of mental hospitals four or five times, major traumatic experience for any human being to go through such major traumatic, almost, in, as you say, almost indescribable in words if you're not there. Right. How then did you come upon Wetico? In the early 2000s, I was writing a book about George Bush, about the madness of George Bush. And I was pointing out that he, he's just a symbol. He's reflecting our own madness and, um, that he's not separate from us, that we have literally dreamed up George Bush to embody and reflect our own madness. And as I was writing that book, I came across the Native American idea of Watiko. And, um, you know, and then I began to realize after the book came out that, oh, wow, this maps onto my family, that my father was in a sense, 
taken over by Watiko, and it's a non-local disease in that it's an inner disease of the psyche, but it somehow is able to manifest through the medium of the outside world synchronistically. And, um, and then I began to see, oh, wow, the same mind virus that was playing through George Bush or playing through my father and playing through me, through my reactions to encountering my father being taken over by Watiko, that that same mind virus was actually informing the greater body politic of our planet. And then I began to realize it's like iterations of a deeper fractal, that this is a non-local field, field disease. It exists in the non-local field. It actually, its origin is the human psyche and it operates through the blind spots. And to the extent we don't see it because it's a form of blindness, we unwittingly become a conduit for it. And then I began to realize every spiritual tradition is pointing at Watiko. In the Bible, for example, in the apocryphal text, they talk about the counterfeiting spirit. And of course, it got edited out of the Bible because I point out in one of my books that Watiko was on the editorial board. But the counterfeiting spirit, the way they describe it in the apocryphal text, it's word for word Watiko. It, it um, has no creative creativity on its own. It impersonates us. It puts us on. And if we're not awake in that moment to who we actually are, to our true nature, we then take on and identify its false version of ourselves. And then it has us. Then it can manipulate and control us. And um, so if you think about what I'm saying, how Watiko works, it actually tricks us into giving ourselves away. We identify with who we're not and we, we disconnect from our creative power. That's a recipe for madness. And that's Watiko. And I began to realize that was playing out in my family, with my father, in my own mind and in the world. And, and that's why every spiritual tradition, and that's what my books are about, are pointing at Watiko. But if we don't see it, it's going to kill us. But if we see it, then it actually can help us to awaken. When you talk about Watiko and you call it a virus, and those of us who are used to normal viruses, we ask the question, how is this virus transmitted? Yeah. Watiko, is it transmitted? And you dropped yeah. into the communication something called non-local transmission or non-local communication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want yeah. you to talk about the transmission of Watiko in light of non-local communication, please. Yeah, for sure. Totally. So just to give a definition, so the, the idea that this universe Quantum physics has shown, empirically shown, this is this, this not a local universe, it's a non-local universe. A way to understand that is that it transcends the third dimensional sort of laws of space and time where light only travels at the speed of light and, and, you know, things are separate in, in space and time. With a non-local cosmos, there's no separation anywhere. There's no separate parts. And there's instantaneous communication faster than the speed of light throughout time and space. So everything is interconnected because quantum physics has shown this is, this universe is being quantum in nature. It's seamlessly whole. There's no separate parts interacting. It's one quantum system whose intrinsic quality is wholeness, is non-separation and is non-locality. There's no you know, it's not like bound by the third dimensional laws of space and time. Now, Watiko transmits through the site, you know, so it's not a physical virus, but it transmits. It's incredibly contagious. 
and it transmits through the unconscious. So it's like, think about it like a spell, okay? When somebody is under a spell, you know, or say if somebody, if they're lying and they're convinced of the truth of their lying, right? They have a very convincing effect on others. All of a sudden, other people will take on and, and feel like, oh, you know, what they're saying must be true because they're so convinced. Well, the mind virus has just transmitted into their psyche. And so the idea is, is that we all are not separate and we all affect each other by, you know, our energy and by the perspectives we hold and how we actually express ourselves. We're continually influencing each other all the time. But the, the mind virus, Watiko, it operates through the channel of the unconscious. So if somebody is unconscious as if they are under a spell, that can actually influence the listener, other people, the family system in such a way that they become put under the spell. And then they, in a, in a mutual way, reinforce each other's spell, which becomes this collective psychosis. And that's, think about the mainstream reality right now. There's unbelievable propaganda and lying and mind control. And when people don't see through that and they actually take it online into their psyche and they, they get propagandized or whatever the word is. And they, and then they reinforce each other's, you know, incredible, the, the spell they're under. That's a collective psychosis. And Watiko is a collective psychosis. And it's unbelievable to me that not more people are talking about we're in the middle of a collective psychosis. Uh, by the way, I like your use of the word uh, propagandized. I, I, it's a good word you made up. Okay, I, cool. I understood exactly what you meant. Right. So totally. you, you're talking about some pretty radical uh, concepts here, Paul, about when you're talking about non-local uh, transmission transmission from mind to mind, you know, across space. So I'm trying to put it in a context so mm -hmm. I can connect with you. And I'm going to tell you a couple of stories that were told to me by the English uh, philosopher uh, Rupert Sheldrake. So one of the stories that Rupert tells is about how when we had milk bottles and milk was delivered to, uh, to residences in bottles, when the milk sat the cream came to the top. And at a certain point, birds in England figured out that if they poke through the little cardboard at the top of the bottle, they could get to the cream. And what Sheldrake discovered and shared with us is that as soon as those birds in England started to do that pecking through the cardboard to get to the cream, Birds on the European con continent right. started doing the same thing, even though the birds did not Zoom with each other or talk on the phone or have any kind of communication. Right. Second story. Rupert went to homes where people had dogs. Right. He took the people out of the home and had them drive for four or five miles away. He then had various cars of other people, filled with other people, drive up to the home while he was photographing and monitoring the dogs. Right. The only time the dogs went on a certain kind of alert is when the actual people who lived with them got within about a mile of the house. Right. So once again, 
There was no telephone for, for that mile for the owners to say to the dogs, we're coming home. Right. But yet, yet the dogs knew. Now, are these two examples similar to what you're talking about? Yeah, no, and I'm very familiar with, like, you know, with his work, with Sheldrake's work of, like, the morphogenetic Morph- fields. Morphic yeah. resonance, he yeah. calls it. Right, morphic resonance, and then the 100th monkey phenomena, and the Bible talks about 144,000 being the symbolic number. The idea being when there's a certain critical number, say, of people who really awaken to whatever degree, that has a non-local effect on the collective psyche, on all of us. And that's a perfect example of, um, you know, non-local effects because the, the idea is, is that we're not separate. You know, we are interdependent and we're telepathic. And, um, you know, people even make um, the case that there's one mind. You could talk about, you know, the collective unconscious of Jung. The idea being that when any one of us has an expansion of consciousness, Similar to those examples you gave, it affects the whole non-local field. It affects people who are also sensitive to that. And so if one person has a realization halfway around the world, it could affect the two of us right in this moment, you know, if we're open. And and that's the nature. That's that's our nature. That's the nature of a non-local universe. And that's the nature of of, of our true nature. And And that gives me hope because things are so dark right now and so frightening, you know, because the thing about Watiko, Jung himself is super switched on to Watiko. He wrote about it all throughout his collected works, but he didn't have the name. The one name he used more than any other name was totalitarian psychosis. Okay. Now Watiko is an inner disease of the soul that expresses itself through the medium of the outside world. And um so if you want to really understand Watiko, Think about when a human psyche is under the thrall of the mind virus. All of a sudden, there's a shadow government that gets set up within the human psyche. This this pathogenic element dictates to the ego and actually subsumes all of the healthy parts of the human personality to serve its nefarious agenda. And um, what I'm describing, think about what's happening in the world with totalitarian forces creeping you know, not even so secretively, it's more like overt that there's like fascist totalitarian forces taking over our planet. That's an outer reflection of how Watiko works in human psyche that's under its thrall. And when you see that, that's to recognize that the outer events in the world are reflecting the inner state of a psyche what I'm describing, that's just like a dream, because a dream is an actual reflection of what's happening inside of a human psyche. When you realize that, that's when you begin to realize the dreamlike nature that is an expansion of consciousness and that does liberate the creative spirit. That's what, that's the profundity of what I'm trying to say that we, that something is being shown to us through the Watiko epidemic and it's destroying us. Because we don't recognize what it's revealing to us. This is this revelation that's happening that we're all dreaming up together. And it's actually helping us to wake up. And if we don't recognize that, guaranteed, we're fated to destroy ourselves. That's what my work is about. That's what I'm continually trying to get across to people. How is Watiko different or is it the same 
as Jung's concept of animas or the religious concept of Satan, the devil. Yeah, I point out in my work that um, the religious concept, for example, of, of Satan, the devil, you know, every tradition has their devil, you know, different words like whatever. I won't go into all the different traditions, but it's exactly the same, you know, and I point that out. And but Jung points out, how does he describe Satan? This is pretty much a quote. Satan is the godfather of humanity as a spiritual being. Satan is our godfather. In other words, Jung is pointing out that the figure of Satan is actually catalyzing us, helping us to wake up. He says in his collected works that Satan was the one who best understood God's secret intentions and played the role he did so that they would be accomplished. That's what I'm pointing out in Watiko. Okay, that and in the answer to Job, I just in my next book, I have a big, you know, chapter on Jung's answer to Job, in which, you know, he really tries to come to terms with the divine darkness, with Satan. And it's exactly what I'm pointing out in Watiko, that Satan was secretly helping us. But if we don't recognize what it's revealing to us, it will kill us. So it's exactly that's a great question. And they're very equivalent terms. They're equal in terms. Well, in the remaining time that we have, I'd like to ask you to focus on solutions. You've given us the diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we need a treatment plan. No, I, I hear you. I'm right with you on that you've, one. You, sure. You've made it very clear yeah, that yeah, we yeah. are in perilous times. Right. And I share that view with you. You've made it very clear that we're facing the possibility of totalitarian fascistic takeover of right. country after country, and if they can, to take over the planet. Right. You've made that very clear. And you've made it clear that you believe that it's a spiritual, if you will, virus that is extremely contagious and extremely dangerous. Right. Now tell us, what's the cure? Yeah, what's, yeah, the, yeah. what's the treatment plan, Paul? Yeah, totally. No, I appreciate that. That's 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 the right question. And um, I'm very hopeful because, see, the mind virus, the Watiko mind virus has no creativity at all. It's a master impersonator. It plugs into our creativity and it turns us against against us. So the solution, the cure is for any of us to access the creative spirit because what Watiko is showing us is that all of us are these creative geniuses. That's our nature, okay? We are made in the image of our creator in that we are creative beings. And to the extent we don't access our own creativity, instead of getting it uh, expressed constructively, it turns self and other destructive, okay? In which we are committing collective suicide. That's the deep, That's the deeper dreaming of what's happening in our world. How come we're doing that? If somebody came to me into my office and shared with me a dream and the dream was, oh, there's this pandemic and these totalitarian forces are taking over and taking away our liberties and our freedom and centralizing power and control. If that was their dream, you know, which is exactly what's happening in our world. So I'm viewing it symbolically. 
um, what would that dream mean? How would I interpret that dream? And I would say, oh, well, clearly you as the dreamer are not in touch with your creative agency and power. So you're outsourcing it and external forces, the fourth, the powers of the state are picking up your own creative power and turning it against you. What that means is to the extent that any of us connect with our creative power and express ourselves creatively, by doing that, we actually have realization of our nature because our nature is by its nature creative. And the more we actually express ourselves creatively, the more we have realization of our nature. It becomes a positive feedback loop that creates light upon light. And when we connect with other people who are also awakening to the dreamlike nature and are connecting with their true nature as creative beings and expressing ourselves creatively, we can realize, and this isn't new age woo-woo stuff, this is the actual reality of it. We can realize we are literally dreaming up what's happening together. We are dreaming up this madness and this evil together, and it's going to destroy us unless, like I've been saying again and again, we realize what it's revealing to us. Then we can actually step into our creative spirit we can consciously participate in our own evolutionary process. That's what this is about. Okay. And that's the solution. Paul, I'm a practical person. I have a, a background in classic American pragmatism, Pierce, Royce, Santiana, Dewey, and those philosophers. Right. So, you know, I'm a guy that wants to know how to get things done. When a right. patient comes into my office, I see a job to be done. I want to know what's the most efficient way that we can get this job done and get this person going to where they want to go. So I'm listening to what you say, and I'm right. saying to myself, okay, Paul's telling me that I'm suffering from a mind virus. Fair enough. He's telling me I'm suffering from a mind virus that is so insidious that I don't even know I have it. Right. Okay, fair enough. I know enough about unconscious processes to know that he can be accurate, that I am suffering from this thing. Furthermore, he hasn't said it yet, but it's quite possible that this virus is capable not only of causing dissent interpersonally amongst people and communities and countries, it's capable of causing dissent intrapersonally, like within the person. It right. could cause cancer. It could cause heart disease. Right. It could cause all kinds of things. Right. Okay, I get that. What right. I don't get and I need your help with is, right. what do you mean when you say I need to act creatively, be creative? I love to be creative, but I don't quite get a handle on what right. kind of action I've got to take. Right. So what I'm saying is that we, and this is quantum physics. I, I wrote a book on quantum physics and this is the major thing that, you know, quantum physics showed, it proved empirically there's no objective world. If you think there's an objective world, that's just a nonsensical idea. We actually are influencing the world that we're perceiving via the act of perception. That in other words, the act of perception is a key factor in the equation of the universe, which is to say the act of observation is creative. Okay, so we are literally creating our experience. That we know. We know that from astronomers who figured right. out that when they look at a star, the subjective act of looking at the star influences what they see. We know yeah. that. Right. Okay, so that's a given, even though it's taking, it's only been a century, and it's probably going to take a number of other centuries 
for the, you know, for common, you know, person to sure. integrate that realization. And, and by the way, Paul, what you're saying about the influence that we each have on everything around us is why in science, we, when we're measuring something, we use a double blind because we don't right. want the scientists to know what it is that they're giving the subjects. Right, right. No, totally. So, so, so the point is, is that we are creating our experience each and every moment. We're creating our experience of ourselves. We're creating our experience of the world. Okay. Each and every moment. Now, here's the answer to your question. When I say the solution involves being creative, so many people feel, Oh, but I'm not creative. I'm stuck. I'm blocked and all that. And I would say, Oh, I hear you. I'm a creative person. I deal with that every day. And, but I would invite people on an individual, um, you know, each person needs to do this to really inquire into when they step into them, into themselves, into their light, into their voice, into being creative, invariably, you know, that's going to consolidate some sort of resistance or obstacle or negative force or trauma. And I would point out, okay, what's going on in that moment? How are you colluding and investing this reality in that seemingly obscuring force that's stopping you from stepping into who you are? You're actually, we are complicit in that. There's nobody doing that to us. We are doing that to ourselves. So so to the extent that any of us can take responsibility for our own process, for our own creative process, and actually shed light on what is blocking us and seeing how we're enabling our own feeling of being limited and stuck and traumatized. That's something that we've gotten in the habit of doing. Another way of saying that is we have this creative power that's unimaginable. And somehow we've entranced ourselves. We have literally hypnotized ourselves by our own creative genius to feel that we're traumatized and wounded and these limited beings that there's no one doing that to us. We are doing that to ourselves. So I'm inviting people to inquire into that process and unlock that. And when you unlock that, you discover, oh, the creative spirit is, has always been flowing through me, but it, this creative spirit is so creative that I've actually been creating an experience that I'm not creative. And I feel that that's objectively true. That's an expression of how creative we are, that we can literally create an experience of feeling like I'm not creative. What I'm talking about is tapping into that energy. Each one of us, it's our responsibility. There's no one else doing it who can do it for us. And, and really getting in touch with our nature. And our nature, by its nature, is compassionate. Okay. And that compassion is non-local. The more you embody it, the more you express it, the more there is to express and the more there is to share. And compassion is the Watiko dissolver par excellence. In the introduction to the program, you heard me state that I believe that human beings are basically friendly tribal animals who like to congregate, hang out with each other, cooperate and collaborate. But we've got a small percentage who are predators, greedy, avaricious, and power-hungry. Are those people a manifestation of Watiko? Are they our Watiko on the planet that we need to deal with? Or have they already have they already transmitted their Watiko to every single one of us, and we are 
inadvertent co-conspirators. Yeah. So on the one hand, the thing about Watiko, it can literally, because it's this archetypal transpersonal energy, it can take over and possess a person. So the person can unwittingly or wittingly become taken over and become an instrument and an embodiment of Watiko. But keep in mind, I, I agree with you that there are this small amount of actual really sick people, these predators. You know, my father was one of them. I mean, that's how I learned all this. And the point is, though, we have dreamed them up. They are dream characters, which is to say they are embodied reflections of that Watiko part of us. And when you see that, that dissolves the separation, thinking, oh, they're the bad guys and we're the good people. No, having that point of view of separation, that feeds Watiko. But if you recognize, oh, wow, they're taken over by this Watiko energy and they're reflecting back that part of me that in potential has that same energy, then you're not seeing them as separate. Then you're recognizing them as a dream character. That's to have the expansion of consciousness. And then all of a sudden, you're part of the solution in seeing that. I spent part of my career, Paul, at least 10 years doing chemical dependence treatment. And one of the things we were dealing with many years ago was that alcoholics and people who were addicted to substances were stigmatized and looked down upon. They were seen as having weak characters and weak moral standards. And they were heavily criticized for their problems. And at a certain point, alcoholism became recognized as an illness. When it became recognized as an illness, it took away a certain amount of the stigma. Because after all, we don't stigmatize somebody for having cancer or pneumonia or pancreatic problems. We accept that it's an illness. But part of the problem with destigmatizing alcoholism and calling it an illness is that it takes away some of the responsibility for the illness from the person, as in, well, it's not my fault, I caught an illness, and I'm so I'm drinking, it's, I'm, I'm not responsible. And so there, it, it lent itself to abdication that we have to deal with. And I'm wondering, is this similar with Watiko? Is saying that it's a virus and that it's a mind illness is that going to take away some of our personal responsibility for doing something about it? Because after all, it's not my fault. I went to this event and there were all these crazy people full of Watiko and I caught it and now I'm all screwed up. Yeah. Let me answer that by really more um, shedding light on the nature of Watiko. So Watiko, ultimately speaking, doesn't even exist. There is no such thing. And yet it can destroy our species. Okay. That's the paradox. In Buddhism, it's called emptiness, that there's no intrinsic independent existence. It's nothing. It's no external mind virus that we need to be scared of if we're, because fear is superfood for Watiko. So if we think, Oh, I have to be scared of this thing and it's, Oh, I'm not responsible. And it's, it's really just this mind virus. No, that itself is the perspective of Watiko. Now, in Buddhism, they talk about the emptiness, which means there's no intrinsic independent existence from its own side. And yet, at the same time, it's not separate from our own mind. 
Okay, so what I'm pointing at, that paradox, is it's it's actually pointing at the incredible, untapped, creative power. That's ours. That's our nature. It's like we have this magic wand, but we don't know we have it, and we don't know how to implement it in a productive way. And so the idea being that we, each one of us, have to accept responsibility. Um, because, it, for example, what Tico, it can't steal our soul, but it can trick us into giving it away. So we have to find that place in us where we're colluding with the virus. You know, that's and that's where we have to accept responsibility. There's no external virus. It doesn't even exist. My concern as I digest what you're saying is that people who have the luxury of being introspective will be able to tap into what you're sharing with us if they want to. But people who don't have that luxury, the people who are being taken in by the Trumpists, those people, so many of them, are so busy just putting some food on the table and making enough money for rent that they don't have any idea of such things as a Watiko, a evil, a virus. They're just trying to get by in the world. And one of the reasons they're so easy prey to the Trumpists and the totalitarian fascists is because they're really sick and tired of being on the edge of going nowhere. Over 50% of the people in the United States right now, if their refrigerator breaks, they don't have the money to buy a new refrigerator. And I don't know how we get to them, to for them to look at their creative selves, because they are leading part of the way. They have been indoctrinated, in your words, with Watiko. Yeah. Yeah, and what I'm I'm right with you, and um, that's why it's so important for for you know all the rest of us who do have the time, the energy to self reflect, to really shed light on what's actually because what I'm talking about this is at the bottom of the madness that's playing out. This is the solution to the myriad world crises. There's no there's no doubt about that, and I, I can I can prove that. Um, but it, you know, it's not like I mean, but it, 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 it involves us. You see, this is in quantum physics. They, they show they've proven this is a participatory world. We are participating in the recreation of the universe each and every moment. Watiko, it's offering us this incredible encoded within it is this medicine, but it's a participatory medicine. It doesn't just, it's not just like passively. We, you know, we encounter it and it heals us. No, we have to recognize what it's revealing to us. And that's why for the, for those of us who have the time and the energy, the luxury to self reflect, to really understand this and then to embody it and then to creatively express it. That hopefully my prayer is that there will be a sufficient number that will non locally affect, you know, the whole collective unconscious. In the collected works, Jung was fond of making the image of how symbols get created in the psyche. And he said, it's like when you take a grain of sugar and you dissolve it in a glass of water, it'll just dissolve and dissolve one after the other until it reaches the saturation point. And you add one more grain of sugar and a crystal will manifest. He says, that's like a symbol manifesting in the unconscious. 
And any one of us self-reflecting, seeing our shadow, recognizing the dreamlike nature, seeing what he go could be that grain of sugar that crystallizes an expansion in the collective unconscious of our species. Thank you, Paul. And thank you so much for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health and Politics. For you all, here's Paul's book. I'm sure you can get it on Amazon. He's written other books on Watiko. I'm sure you can find Paul Levy on Google. So thank you so much for being with us today, Paul Levy. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health and Politics. Tune in again next week. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm.